Good to have you all here this morning. Um, I am not Sandy Wilson. Um, I know some of you are, but just stay anyways. It'll be, it'll be okay if you go ahead. Um, really glad to be here with you this morning. You know, one of the things I really have appreciated uh, this past year as I've gotten involved in Amen is I just love the hard work that you all do uh, in your Bible study in the morning at 6.30 in the morning. I mean, there really is a lot of hard work that is done here. And sometimes we can have this temptation, especially uh, when we're younger, to, to think that um, a Bible study like this isn't valuable unless every session is this kind of moving experience where we're emotionally, you know, just charged. And yet the reality is that it's digging deeply in the Word over a long period of time that builds this foundation that we can actually live on. So rather than living on just the kind of the fumes of emotion of some great talk, it really is, and you all know this because so many of you in here have been committed to doing this for years and years, it really is a matter of establishing a foundation of the Word, really digging deep, and it's over time and as that foundation is built that you have uh, something to really, to really live in the context of and to, to, that has a, a fortitude behind it. Um, I say all that to say we've got to cover 47 verses this morning, so we're going to do some work, um, and I hope, you, I hope you're ready this morning, geared up to, to do some of this work. Um, last week, Mitchell talked about the, uh, it went through the first 11 verses, I didn't realize this when he switched with me, he's in, you know, he had to go to Jakarta, because that's where he's eventually going to be a, a missionary, he's going there to visit with his wife and his daughter, and he was actually scheduled for this week. And I was scheduled for the week before. So I had 11 verses of, you know, 1 Corinthians 15. That seemed like a good idea. When Mitchell said, hey, can you swap with me? I paid no attention to what he had as a sign. So uh, it wasn't until he was on a plane and gone that I was like, what? 47 verses, but here we are. Um, And it's beautiful and it's powerful to see the argument that Paul makes and the conclusion that he draws in regards to our lives. Before we read these verses, I wanted to start just by sharing briefly, uh, an experience that I had several years ago. I had the privilege of going to, uh, with, with some, uh, another pastor, some elders, not from this church, from a, from a different church, to go minister at a conference, and of all places, in a United Nations refugee camp on the border of Ethiopia and Sudan. And uh, so we flew into Addis Ababa and then took another plane that actually kind of acted like a bus because we kept landing like every 15 minutes to pick up some people, drop off some people, and finally landed at this, this um, remote area called Bonga, and were driven out to this refugee camp, United Nations refugee camp, where these refugees from Sudan had been living for 10 years. Um, uh, many of them believers, and there was a church there, and we were there to, to do some teaching, some Bible teaching in the midst of that. Uh, what I was most struck with, and what I've been left with ever since, um, was the... Uh, the attitude of my particular translator. Um, I don't know that I've ever met someone that is quite as happy and content and hopeful as he was. And as the days went on, I became his hopefulness and the hopelessness of his kind of position in life came more and more in contrast. Um, He was every morning so joyful, so excited to be before the Word, Um, so thankful for his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, just just literally full of joy from something inside, not something outside. And yet, 
as I became aware of his circumstances and his future, I just it was really it just didn't make sense to me in so many ways. Um, here's a guy who literally had scars on his back. Um, at one point, uh, we were going to do some, do some work, and he took his shirt off to change, and, and he had scars on his back from, from being beaten in Sudan just for following Christ because he was a Christian and, he, and their village was attacked. Uh, not only that, but he's been in this, he grew up for the last 10 years in this refugee camp with no hope. They had no thought of what's going to happen next. They didn't know if they would ever leave there. They couldn't really get jobs. They couldn't really plant crops. They couldn't really do anything. There was no kind of future for them there. They were just existing in that context. Um, and it was, you know, and the context was meager. I mean, was, they hardly owned anything, and they were, they were really uh, totally bo- um, waiting on whatever the United Nations handed them as far as any food or any resources. Um, and yet in that context, he was finding joy because his hope really was in the Lord. And in contrast, I find my hope a lot of times in other things. I know as a believer that my hope is in the Lord, but I have this tendency to, to bank my hope in other things. I mean, you know, I can bank my hope in, man, I can't wait to see my kids graduate from college. That's, that's a great moment. I'm hopeful for that moment. I'm looking towards that, and I start to gain kind of my my, well, I can make it through today and I can, can keep going because I'm looking forward to that. Or I really want to see my kids get married. I can't, I want to see that. I'm, I have a hope in that or I have a hope in grandkids. Or it can be as pathetic as I'm pretty excited where I'm going on vacation this year. I have a, I have a hope in that. I'm looking forward to that. And I start looking forward to things, using that as a motivation for my struggle now. And the reality is those things are, are, are pathetic. And I didn't really pay attention to that as much. It was when I'm standing there with this friend of mine in Ethiopia, realizing he has no chance of ever having any of those hopes. He's not looking... What is he looking forward to? And the reality that kept coming to me every day is, this guy is really looking forward to his resurrected body and being with the Lord. Like, that's his hope. And that stirs in him this great joy in a context that is awful. And, and I want his joy. I want what he has. And as we look at these things this morning, I want to keep that in con- keep our, our, our own situations in context, uh, realizing that we have a tendency to be looking forward to something that is a lot less than what we're going to be offered this morning in these verses. Let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 15, picking up at verse 12. We've heard... Um, Mitchell last week talked about, here's the gospel tradition. Here's a clear understanding that the resurrection we're talking about is a fact of history. There were eyewitnesses. This thing happened. Uh, and now in the context of you know, the Greeks especially thinking, you know, you might, your body's not going to resurrect. I mean, maybe your soul, maybe there's like a reincarnation. Maybe your spirit goes somewhere. And Paul's saying, no, this is radically different. Picking up in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things, under, all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humbly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable and what is raised imperishable? It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not... But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also those who are of dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. And this mortal body 
must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Oh, that's awesome. All right, let's get to work at looking at these things. First of all, in verses 15, uh, 12 through 34, we're going to see this. We hope in the certainty of a resurrection. We're talking this morning about a believer's hope. Our hope is in the certainty of a resurrection. You're going to see three uh, arguments that Paul makes in regards to this, the certainty of the resurrection. The first one, he argues kind of hypothetically about, well, what if there is not a resurrection? So he, first of all, in verses 12 through 19, he argues that the resurrection of Christ is key to the Christian faith. The resurrection of Christ is key to the Christian faith. And he goes through this kind of list of, hey, if Christ hasn't raised from the dead, then let's go through what, what that means, what that looks like. And he first of all says in verse 14, our preaching and faith is empty and powerless. Okay, so what we're doing doesn't even make sense. All right, our preaching, our teaching is just going to be empty and powerless. If there's no resurrection of Christ, this just wouldn't make any sense. And then in verse 15, he says, we're lying to people about God. (laughs) We're misrepresenting God, he says. Because we're telling people that He's been raised from the dead. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then our teaching and preaching is just a lie. I mean, we're just now, we're now lying to people about who God is. And then he goes on, verse 17, he would say, and also, not only are, is our preaching empty and, and powerless, but we are trapped in our sins. We are still trapped in our sins. That would be the conclusion. I mean, because without the resurrection, there is no conquering of sin. Um, obviously death has claimed Christ and the sacrifice was not going to work there. Uh, He was just another human being. And he goes on further in verse 18. People who have died are lost. So there is no hope afterwards. And this is it. We have to say, just like the the prevailing uh, thought during that, that time in the Roman Empire, hey, when you die, it's just over. There's just nothing. And so then we... You know, your friends who've died, they're lost. They're gone. Um, and all you have is this life. And that which he argues finally in verse 19, pretty profound statement, the world should pity us. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, the world should pity us. And let me just say, that doesn't make any, that, 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 uh, that's not even more, any more illustrated than it is this morning right here. This group of men who get up at 6.30 in the morning, right? And you come here, and you sit and you listen to Sandy Wilson or me or Mitchell or Barton. You open your Bibles and you're working hard, writing all these things down. you got these big notebooks. You spent this money. You're doing all this stuff. If your hope is only in what happens in this world, let me just say right now, you look ridiculous. <laughs> this is a waste of your time. And your friend should be going, oh, bless his heart. <laughs> you know? He probably should just get an extra hour of sleep because he is wasting, he's only got hope in this life and he is wasting hours 
at something that really just doesn't matter. And they should have pity. If there is no resurrection from the dead, if Christ has not been raised and you're not going to be raised, then what we're doing here is just a waste of time. It is ridiculous. Let's just all eat our breakfast at home and sleep in a little bit longer. Uh, That would make the most sense. The world should pity us. So he argues, first of all, hypothetically, if, if there was no resurrection, what would that look like for what's going on here? The next thing he goes on in verses 20 through 28, and he argues that our resurrection will mark the fulfillment of Christ's work. Now he turns to more theological arguments um, and begins to give us this picture of, of Christ and Adam and first fruits. So verses 20 through 28, our resurrection will mark the fulfillment of Christ's work. Um, and then verses 20, he starts in verses 21 through 22, and he's showing that in Adam and in Christ, or I put there in the notes, as our federal head, Christ has reversed the fall of Adam. As our federal head, Christ has reversed the fall of Adam. Now let's just talk about federal head a little bit here, because this is something that especially as Americans, we just don't, we don't understand, and we do understand it, we don't like it. <laughs> um, Adam, uh, humanly speaking, in, in our sin, was our federal head. A federal head means he was the representative for us all, a perfect representative. Um, and so, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. He was, in that, our fed, in, in our, in our natural state, he was our federal head. So we are all guilty in Adam. In our culture, that doesn't make sense. Being guilty for the sins of the Father is not something that we naturally embrace here. You know, so if, if, you were, if your father was guilty of, uh, of, of fraud, of swindling somebody, uh, and he had to go to prison, and, and he, well, you might bear the marks of, you know, well, you're part of that family, but you wouldn't necessarily be considered to have to pay the punishment. But in a lot of cultures throughout the world, uh, even today, there is this idea that if one member, particularly if the father is guilty, then the family is guilty. If the father is like this, then the family has to be like this. Um, and we don't, it's hard for us to get our hands around that. The reality is that our, that our human natural father, Adam, was guilty. So we are all guilty. So death has come to all of us. And you say, well, if I were there, I probably wouldn't have eaten the apple. And I would say, no, there's a naked woman holding an apple saying, eat this. You probably would have. Um, we all sinned in Adam. And so we're all standing condemned. But here's what you're going to love about we, we hate that part of federal headship. But here's the part we love. Christ becomes our federal head in salvation for His people. And so because of what Christ has done, it's now all passed on to you. So, so in Adam came death to all, and in Christ came life to all those who are His, of His family. And so Christ it becomes your federal head in salvation. And so what, what He has done Himself now becomes yours. Oh, we love that part. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, in, in Adam, you, you had death. In Christ, you have life. And Romans chapter 5 talks about this significantly. Um, that, that this is, you know, that we're connected to Adam in our sin, but in Christ, 
uh, in Christ, we are connected to our salvation. And here, Paul makes the point, we're connected to the resurrection of, of ourselves. And then it goes on in verse 23, and he uses this word, first fruits. As first fruits of the resurrection, Christ has set in motion something that cannot be stopped. As the first fruits of the resurrection, Christ has set something in motion that cannot be stopped. And you say, well, well how do you know it can't be stopped? Because of the word first fruits. <laughs> If there's something is first, if you say something is first, you are logically saying there's something that follows. Otherwise, you just would say something is only. But he's saying he's the first fruits. If he's the first fruits, that means there's got to be other fruits. So Christ is the first one raised from the dead. And because he is the first fruits, he has set in motion something that cannot be stopped. He is, he is not just the only one resurrected, he is the first fruits of the, of the resurrection which means there is naturally going to be those who follow. This is important for our understanding of our our hope, our security. This idea that that something has been set in motion that will be completed, that that is started by Christ and will be finished by Christ, that He is doing this. It's going to happen. It cannot be stopped. There's got to be more. And then we see in verses 24 through 28... Paul argues practically. Um, let me just pause here, Lon. Do we have any questions right now? All right, good. Um, or not good, I don't know. Uh, in verses 24 through 28, he starts to argue practically. As a victorious king, Christ will deliver his kingdom. As a victorious king, Christ will deliver his kingdom. The wording here is, is just powerful and beautiful. Um, he, uh, he talks about, um, excuse me, he's not going to argue practically until verses 29. Sorry, we're still on the theological. Uh, apologize for that. Um, as victorious king, Christ will deliver his kingdom. The wording here is wording that comes straight out of Psalm 110, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, remember, uh, it says that God the Father will give to God the Son the nations as an inheritance. He will make the, uh, his enemies uh, his footstool, Psalm 110 uses those same words. This is the conquering Christ. This is not Christ the priest, this is Christ the king. And this is the language that Paul uses here. He's going to deliver on his kingdom. So he is our federal head. Christ is our federal head. And as he was resurrected, uh, we gain the resurrection because of what he has done. He is the first fruits, he has set in motion something that cannot be stopped because He was raised from the dead as the first, we also are going to follow in our resurrection. And then He says, and He is a victorious King. This is going to be accomplished because the King is going to deliver His kingdom. And the, and the, and the, uh, the, the, full, the mark of, of completion is going to be when, when the Son is handed all of us, when we are all there, secure, and there is a now but not yet, because certainly we've been put in motion something that cannot be stopped. You are already in the process. You are already claimed for Christ. It's already a done deal, but you haven't realized it yet because we're all still sitting here. So it's a guarantee that's going to happen, so there's, and, and we can be secure in that now, but there also is a hope for us knowing this is going to happen. There's nothing that can thwart this at all. And then in verses 29 through 34, 
he argues regarding the resurrection from a practical side. I know some of you who read early looked at verse 29 and you're going, what? Baptism from the dead. That's the verse, right? Just in case you haven't, you haven't looked at it. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are all people baptized on their behalf? And we're thinking, we don't baptize for the dead. <laughs> in fact, we think that's wrong. What's going on here? And uh, you could look at probably 20 to 40 different commentaries of evangelical writers, and you will get 20 to 40 different responses of what this means. And uh, I wanted to make sure that I had the, uh, that I was at least consistent with what Sandy would teach, uh, since he teaches most of the time. So I asked for his wisdom, and he said, Todd, here's my wisdom. I don't know. <laughs> and so we're, we're not sure. We're not sure What's going on here? But what's, what, a, what appears to be going on in this section is that our resurrection, what Paul is saying is our resurrection makes sense of our Christian practice. Our resurrection makes sense of our Christian practice. Because when it's lumped in here together with the suffering that he experienced, and what he's, it seems to be saying here is, you know, the, the final argument is if you just look practically at what's going on, if we didn't have a hope in a resurrection, practically what's going on, why would we be doing these things? And so, um, again, I don't know that Paul is arguing that we should be baptizing for the dead. He's just saying maybe that some Christians practice that, and, <laughs> and why would they do that if they didn't think people, if there was a resurrection? So I don't know if he's, he's, a, he's affirming it as something that should be done. I don't think he is. Um, but then going on in verses 30 through 31, okay, sorry, first, uh, verse 29, our actions must fit doctrine. Our actions must fit doctrine. And then verses 30 through 31, our suffering must have a purpose. The resurrection brings purpose in our suffering. And that goes back to my friend in Ethiopia or to anything you're going through right now. Uh, generally speaking, in a room like this in, in America, we're, we're feeling kind of okay and our, our suffering uh, you know, might be limited and, and might look to most people like, well, that's not that bad. And yet the reality is there's some of you in here who are going through some significant suffering. And certainly for me, always being in, having the opportunity to be in places uh, like Ethiopia and to be in places like Uganda and to be in places uh, even in, in uh Eastern Europe, and to see some of the suffering that Christians go through, or to read some of the same stories that you've read, and you, and you wonder, how does someone, how does, a, how does a believer, how does a man our age, who seems to have no hope coming to him in this life, no future necessarily, he's going to be, in the, he's going to be struggling the same, in the same poverty his whole life, or he's going to be facing suffering his whole life, how does that person interact with the Lord Jesus Christ and feel like God is on His side? Because we have a tendency to feel like God is only on our side if kind of some of our prayers are answered. But God kind of working things out for us. Well, how does a guy like that, who doesn't see, see any of that in his life, how does he have hope? It's only because of the resurrection, brothers. His hope is in what's to come. 
And, it's, and it so enraptures his thought and his life that the suffering, as Paul says in other places in Scripture, is of little consequence. Hey, you know, inward, outwardly, I'm wasting away. But my light and momentary afflictions are achieving for me an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And his light and momentary afflictions for Paul was being beaten almost to the point of death, being chained in an inner prison. Those are the things he's calling light and momentary afflictions. And he's saying, hey, these things are nothing compared to this eternal weight of glory that I'm pursuing. And that's the call to all of us even this morning to begin to reorient our lives to Scripture and realize that we have a tendency to that our our hope is in in earthly things. And then when those earthly things don't work out exactly how we want, we start to lose our hope and we feel like the afflictions we're facing and the struggles we're facing are just too much. They're too heavy. They're weighing us down. Where is the God? What's He doing? And yet Paul would say, those are just light and momentary afflictions. You have an eternity facing you. I remember one time, Sandy said in a staff devotion, talking about heaven and what's before us, he said, if if we could really know, if we could really know the extent of the pleasures in heaven, we 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 would be extremely tempted to kill ourselves. It would be so intense and great that we would, want, we would want to do anything to get there. It would be that. It would blow us away. It would, what I'm saying here is, is Paul is trying to address this issue and say, these things, this resurrection reorients your entire life, as, as, as Mitchell said last week. And so even your suffering, you know, it, it made sense in the resurrection. You know, when I struggled in Ephesus, why would I do that? Why would I put myself through that? Because of the resurrection. Because of what's before me. For what, what I have here. Going on here in um, verses 33 through 34, as a result of this, Paul says, make sure your doctrine is right. That's what he's saying in these verses. Hey, wake up. Don't let the culture around you, the people around you, throw you off base. Wake up. Get your doctrine right. So that it shapes how you live. So that your your theology and practice are coming in line together. Well, then he goes on in verses 35 through 49 to talk about the body. We hope in the certainty of a bodily resurrection. Hope in the certainty, not just of a resurrection. The Greeks, maybe some of them could have thought of, well, your soul is resurrected. But they thought, remember, Sandy's talked about this, the body was bad. So the body's sinful, there's nothing... There's nothing you glory in the body. The body is bad, but their spirit is good. And Paul here is going to say, no, your body, there's a bodily resurrection. There's a bodily resurrection of Christ. You are going to have a bodily resurrection. Um, And then here's the argument, and I love this. Verse 35 through 41. Our bodily transformation is not hard to understand. Paul gives the question here that probably all of us think. You know, well, I mean... Have you seen a dead body? Kind of nasty and rotten. And then if it's like, you know, they didn't, you know, if you don't have, you know, you, you, you take out the blood, you put in the formaldehyde, but they look kind of nice at the funeral. But I mean, 10 years later, if we dig up that body, it's going to look nasty and decayed. So how can you, Paul, say that there's a bodily resurrection when you have these nasty, decaying bodies? 
And Paul says, come on, guys. You see this all the time. You take a seed, you stick it in the ground, all right, that's one kind of body, right? And the seed dies in the ground, and what comes out? This amazing plant or this amazing tree. And you have this, this completely different body, but it came from this body. And there's different kinds of flesh. I mean, you see, you know, there's, there's animals, there's, there's human flesh. They're, they're all different kind of bodies. You see uh, earthly bodies, and you see heavenly bodies like stars and sun. Like, you see this all the time. You see different bodies. You see this in, in, in the growth. Listen, this is what's going to happen. Your decaying body is going to be put in the ground and you are going to be raised with a body that is going to be alive and new and there's going to be an identity to it, but it's going to be different. But it's going to come from that seed. It's going to come from your body. And so he's saying, hey, listen, this, you see this in nature. You, you see this all the time. This is not that hard to understand. We're not that crazy or that far off from what's going on here. And then he says uh, in verses 42 through 44, our bodily transformation is going to be dramatic. Our bodily transformation is going to be dramatic. And the wording here, there's four things that he goes through in this thing. He says, you know, you're going to be what is sown perishable, your earthly body, is going to be raised, so you, the body goes into the ground, it's going to be raised imperishable. So all of us right now, we're, we're experiencing this, right? The decay of our bodies. I, I, I told my brother this the other day. My brother's five years younger than me, and uh, he's, he's this big runner guy. And he's so, um, he's overly concerned about the deterioration of his body. And he's decided that the best way, the best um, uh, plan for, for this is to look at my body to determine where he's headed, you know, and uh, which constantly makes me feel insecure every time I'm around him, you know, I'm just like, dude, stop looking at me, you know, he's like, I just want to see where I'm going, and uh, well, I told him, I told him uh, uh, at Christmas, I said, I said, dude, man, I said, I'm, I'm 48 years old, I said, S- somewhere around 46 and a half, uh, the, the, I started falling off a cliff, Mark, I don't know, you know, I said, I run and all that, and all of a sudden, you know, my body's ability to retain calories increased dramatically. <laughs> and I said, I feel like I'm just rolling down the hill right now. You know, I felt like I was kind of doing okay, and then all of a sudden, I mean, this, I started to feel the slope. It's, it's real. Um, and again, as we get older, we, we, we're very aware of the deterioration of everything. That's a reality. Brothers, you're going to be raised imperishable. There will be no deterioration. You've been sown in dishonor. And you're going to be raised in glory. You have been sown in weakness. You know your own weakness. Man as men, we want power, but we've experienced constantly our own weaknesses. We've been sown in the weakness of our body, and as we get older and our minds become you know, we, we're, we're wiser, we know stuff, but we can't do stuff. You know, I always think, I played college soccer, if I could stick this mind in that college soccer body, I would have been amazing. <laughs> but I'm experiencing weakness, not power, but I am going to be raised in power. 
We have natural bodies, but we're going to have spiritual bodies. And this leads in to what is said in the next verses, verses 45 through 49. Our bodily transformation will be like Christ's. Here again, we have this idea of federal headship. So your natural body is a result of of what you have known in Adam. And if that's true, if that's true, then Christ is your federal head. You are going to have that. So if your body, if you're connected to Adam in your natural body, you are connected to Christ in your glorified spiritual body. And so as you look at the resurrected Christ... And you can see what went on with him in the resurrection. You can begin to understand a little bit about what's going to go on with you. They could identify him as Christ, but he was transformed. He was different. Um, he was glorified. Uh, not, in, not completely, not until um, he returns will we see him in all his glory. But our bodily transformation is not only going to be dramatic, it's going to be like our Savior Christ. And I love that final verse, verse 49. Just as we have been born in the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Wow. That's our hope. That's our hope right there. And then so finally in verses 50 through 57, we hope in the so we've hoped in the certainty of a resurrection, we've hoped in the certainty of a bodily resurrection, and finally we hope in the certainty of a victorious bodily resurrection. Paul wants us to feel the victory here. And he says, first of all, in verses 50 through 52, the mystery is revealed. When you see the word mystery in the Bible, when you see the word mystery in the Bible, this isn't something we're not going to know. It's something that you don't know except that God reveals it to you. And because of the Holy Spirit's work in you as as a believer, those mysteries are revealed by the Holy Spirit. So this mystery has been revealed by God. He's the one that has given it to you. And so you can't know. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this doesn't make any sense. You won't grasp it. But when Christ comes into your life, you grasp it. You begin to understand these things. You see them. Because God is revealing this mystery to you. He's showing you, you are going to be resurrected victoriously. This is your victory. This is your hope. This is the the point of your life. This is the trajectory of your life. This is where you're going. And it cannot be stopped. And in verses 53 through 57, we see that this victory is secured. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, this goes back to the first fruits, your victory has been secured. You know, there's that, that song, a debtor to mercy alone. Old, old, ancient hymn. In fact, uh, our music director here, Gabe Statham, actually has just written a new tune to that. We've sung a couple times on Sunday nights. And, and I love that hymn. I love the words of that hymn, especially this line. More happy, but not more secure. The glorified saints in heaven. Yes, that, you know, my grandmother who's in heaven is happier than I am. Because she's in her glorified body. She's in her resurrected body. She understands the victory in the way that I don't understand the victory. She's happier because she has a grasp of these things. Because she's in her, her, you know, she's been raised in, in imperishable and in power. And with a spiritual body, 
But listen to this. She is not more secure in the Father's hands than I am. She is not more secure than you are. are, Your place in heaven is just as secure as if you were there right now. The victory has been secured. And no matter what you face in this life, no matter what struggles, no matter what deterioration in your body, no matter what pain, no matter what persecution you would face in this life, no matter if you were put to death, doesn't change the victory. Nothing can change the victory. That's why our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution at this moment, our brothers and sisters who are, are in prison, who are being beaten at this moment, some who, are, who in this next hour will suffer death as a result of their faith. They walk into it by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that they are going to this victory. This isn't defeat for them. They're not being defeated because their victory is secured. There is no sting of death for the Christian because the victory is secured. You're facing your victory. And it's a sure thing. More happy they are, but not more secure. And as a result of that, we see in verse 58... His conclusion, one verse long, he says, therefore. So after all 57 verses, what is the conclusion? Our conclusion is this, our labor is not in vain. The conclusion of this for all of us this morning is this. All of you, let's be steadfast. Let's be faithful. Let's, not, let's be immovable. You know the trajectory of your faith. Let's be immovable. Don't be swayed by things. Because you know where you're going. You know where the victory is here. And let's abound in the work of Christ. It's the greatest work. Anytime you share the Gospel, anytime you're pursuing ministry for the sake of Christ and His church, and you're like, gosh, I don't know if this worked out. I don't know if that guy really cared what I did. I don't know if this ministry of the poor really matters. Yes, it all matters. It all matters. Because it's all part of the trajectory of where we're going. There is a victory here. It's not a waste of time. Nothing you do for Christ is a waste of time. Even even if it's wiped out (laughs) and you're put to death. It's not a waste of time. Your labor is not in vain. Because this victory has been secured because because Christ has set in motion something that's going to happen. And so everything you do, every little thing you do as a follower of Christ for the sake of the glory of Christ matters for eternity regardless if anybody else sees it. Your labor is not in vain. So hold fast. Be immovable. And let's get busy doing the work of Christ for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You for the beauty and the power of Your Word. We thank You for how You have revealed these things to us. Lord, we would never have known this stuff unless You revealed it to us. We would never have grasped it unless You had given it to us. Father, we have done a lot of hard theological work this morning. Some of it has seemed technical and laborious to us. Help us, Lord, to to receive these things, to soak in these things, to understand them in the depths to which they have been given to us. 
that they might be for us, Father, a foundation to build on. Lord, we are constantly swayed by the emotions that our day throws at us, by things in our work. Lord, we want to hope in, in the future of our work. We want to hope in the future of our family. We want to hope in, the, in silly things like vacations and football games and basketball games. Father, forgive us. Reorient our minds that we might hope in the resurrection. Reorient our minds that we might hope in the victory that is secured for us. Father, give us a glimpse and a picture of what is to come that it might steer and guide our lives. And Lord, in all of this, that you would receive glory by every little thing that is done for the sake of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Lord, this is what we long for. Help us, Father. Help us to pursue it like only you can. We wait upon you, Father, as we go out and live our lives. Praying these things in Jesus' name. Amen.